This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by SK. From clean tech to life sciences, mobility, and semiconductors, SK is investing in the industries that will build a more sustainable and stronger tomorrow. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Steed-Sellers, a senior writer here at the Washington Post. Today we're going to be having a timely discussion about investing in green energy. And I'm delighted to welcome my first guest, Kelly Speaks-Baxman, who joins us from the Department of Energy. Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary Speaks-Baxman, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you so much for having me today. It's nice to meet you. Delighted to meet you. So let's start with President Biden's announcement last week about uh, committing the uh, federal government to investing in clean energy and reducing federal emissions. Why is green energy so very expensive at this point? Well, I would say that actually green energy or clean energy, as we uh, call it, is is not necessarily that expensive in all parts of the country. Um, there are there are technologies such as solar and wind that not only are at par with traditional fossil fuels, but actually are less expensive today in many parts of the country. But what we want to do is get it even further down in cost. And that's what our early our early R&D uh, work goes toward. Um, but it's also recognizing that if we're going to get to our real goal, decarbonization of the grid and of our entire economy, that we need to do more work for other technologies. We can't do this with just solar and wind. We're going to need energy storage, uh, either battery or other longer duration storage. We're going to need um, other technologies, water power technologies, geothermal. There's just a plethora of different technologies that can be applied. But again, I'd say that for solar and wind, much of that, much of those technologies in many parts of the country, it is the least expensive uh, technology to be applied today. And that's why we're moving towards more deployment. So, so that brings me immediately to another question coming out of the news last week, and that is about inflation and energy prices rising, natural gas in particular, I think, and some of the other forms of energy um, that many of us depend on. I know you've spoken about short-term fixes like plugging your windows and looking for leaks, talking to your landlord, but do you think consumers are ready for longer-term fixes, the kind of investments you're talking about? I think the most one of the most exciting things about uh, the bipartisan infrastructure law and what the president has proposed in his Build Back Better Act is actually those longer term uh, technologies that we can begin to deploy, right? So uh, within the efficiency, uh, uh, energy efficiency sector, yes, there is weatherization and intergovernmental programs, uh, which uh, partners with state and locals to get those, those technologies that are ready today. And, and there are programs that local utilities, as well as state energy programs, as well as uh, in the Department of Energy, where we can help to offset the cost of that, uh, not just the low and no cost things that folks can do on them, do by themselves. But then again, with the, with the just historic, um, the historic level of investment that the federal government is working to make and has, uh, has begun through the uh, bipartisan infrastructure law, uh, there are longer term technologies that we can help to offset these costs and eventually get them to market ready costs uh, that folks can uh, implement uh, immediately. I'm longing to dig a little bit more deeply into this notion of bipartisan support. Politicians are notoriously uh, short sighted sometimes in, in thinking about um, what's needed next and thinking about 
uh, the immediate needs of their constituencies. What sort of sense do you have if there's another administration in power uh, coming up that these sorts of changes that uh, the Biden administration is, is committing to will be sustained? That's an excellent question. Um, and it's one that we think about every day within the Department of Energy is how do we make the changes that we're, that we're, we're looking to um, implement durable? And how do we make this uh, to be uh, uh, broader than, than just what the Department of Energy is putting together or other federal government agencies are putting together. And to me, what that means is cooperation and coordination outside of the federal agencies to partner with state and local organizations, to partner with local community organizations, to make sure that they understand and uh, they understand the, the, the good that this, this work can do, but also to make sure that the programs and the, the, the work and the funding that we are doing is tailored specifically to their needs. And so if we are addressing the needs of the local uh, of the local communities, then that's something that they're going to be having ownership over, right? So this is something that we want to embed within the fabric of Americans to be able to work with a cleaner future, to be able to have more jobs that are in that clean energy uh, space, that are uh, able to save money in the wintertime and in the summertime on their energy bills, and to be able to be proud of where they're getting their energy from, that it's from the sun or the wind or from the heat in the ground that we have. So the, the infrastructure bill, the $1.2 trillion bill, clearly was a, a win for clean energy. But how soon, go a little bit further into this, how soon will the ordinary American feel the impact of this, do you think? Oh my gosh, I, I just I just left a meeting on our on some planning with my staff on uh, how we're going to get this to market. This is a once in a generation investment for our nation's infrastructure that's going to create those good paying jobs. It's going to combat climate change. It's going to grow the economy sustainably and equitably. Uh, we are hard at work listening to the communities and listening to the states and listening to the stakeholders as a whole industry uh, to, to, to best structure how we're going to um, uh, put this money out on the street. But also there are some pretty near-term requirements of us, 90-day reports on how we're going to be implementing this plan that we're hard at work on um, every day, uh, literally every day at 9.30. You, you mentioned the word equity in that, and one of the things certainly in the past two years we've become very aware of is inequities across the country. We should have been aware of them for much longer. But how are you going to make sure that people uh, are able to access clean energy equitably across the country and also profit from its benefits? You know, I love that question. Uh, we recognize that the most uh, impactful results start with those communities, and that's the entirety of the community, not just those who are most outspoken and already engaged with Department of Energy and their state energy offices. Um, to make sure that we can build this equitable clean energy future, we have to address those, again, those particular needs of every single community. And that's not uh, just for, uh, I, should, I should rephrase that, it includes uh, those who have been historically underserved and overburdened by energy costs, but it also includes uh, those who have traditionally um, worked hard in the fossil industry. How do we get them to transition um, in a fair and equitable manner? Um, and so the first thing is to really specifically target our programs, ensuring that equitable transition, thinking about it ahead of time 
not just in the after uh, the the at the aftermath. And the second is to make sure that we're incorporating equity considerations through our entire DOE portfolio, um, thinking about how um, even in the regulations. Uh, that we uh, do on appliance standards, thinking about how that specifically impacts low-income folks or folks in certain areas. Um, we've done quite a few programs already this year I'm so proud of, um, like the Communities Leap program, where we um, have uh, issued a, a, a request for information on uh, for communities as to what issues they may have for this clean energy transition and how can we provide technical assistance to help them design their own programs that we can implement. There's weatherization assistance for low-income families to help them to implement um, uh, some of the more costly uh, 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 energy efficiency programs. And then there's the National so Community Solar Partnership that we've put together where we can uh, help communities to build uh, 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 solar uh, solar plants that they can buy into or they can participate in, saving them money, helping them uh, when they might not otherwise be able to put them on the rooftops of their homes and such. You you talk so committedly about this, and of course you're talking from a, a, a federal level. Do you get to go out and see these programs being implemented and visit some of the people who will be affected by them? Oh my goodness, I cannot wait to do so. We have been um, at the Department of Energy in uh, a fully remote atmosphere. And so I haven't had the, the privilege to be able to do this um, in this first year in office. I joined January 20th, but I cannot wait. I was able to make it out uh, because I was I was able to uh, join the secretary at uh, the National Renewable Energy Lab, which was really exciting. But what I really want to do is get out into those communities and talk to folks. We have had a lot of stakeholder uh, outreach and discussion virtually thus far, but um, just so looking forward to being able to get out into the field and really look, meet people where they are. And of course, you know, this issue is a global issue, as you know, far better than I do. But are you working, what is the department doing with other governments or with uh, across the world to try and make sure there's common understanding about how to move forward? Yes, there was, uh, I was, I also had the privilege to uh, travel to uh, the, the Conference of Parties COP26. It was such an amazing experience to see businesses coming out with their, uh, with their commitments, governments coming out with their commitments. And I really believe that President Biden and Secretary Granholm just uh, really showed their return and their leadership to the global stage on uh, decarbonization. Um, there were several uh, initiatives that we announced uh, while we were out there. The Better Climate Challenge, this is an EERE-led uh, uh, challenge um, from my office, uh, where we challenge organizations to set their own ambitious portfolio-wide greenhouse gas uh, emission uh, reduction goals. That's pretty exciting. The Net Zero World Initiative, uh, where the United States is partnering with countries to rapidly scale up that energy Energy, clean energy deployment and to help develop decarbonization strategies. Um, and DOE-wide, we're looking to mobilize our technologies and our world-class expertise uh, from the national laboratories to help us move toward a net zero world. And third, we announced the carbon negative Earthshot, which is really exciting. Uh, it seeks to achieve durable and scalable carbon dioxide removal for less than $100 per net metric ton within a decade. Uh, there's so much that we're doing. Uh, H2 Twin Cities, I could go on, but I, I probably <laughs> shouldn't. 
So Kelly, let me get back to President Biden's announcement last week. Part of that initiative involves um, making existing federal buildings more energy efficient. That's a very expensive proposition. What do you say to people who criticize it and say it's too expensive? I say there is no better example of how to lead the world in decarbonization, which is frankly critical. We are in an urgent period of climate crisis, and there is no better way to get folks to understand that you can do this affordably and responsibly and um, with a lot of fun, actually, um, if, if you lead by example. And that's one of the important elements. And so our Federal Energy Management Program Office within the Office of uh, Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy stands by to support agencies to make sure that we can do it in a cost-effective manner, that we are doing it with leverage of private industry dollars so that we are being as responsible as possible. And there were, that we're doing it um, in, in concurrence with the urgency of this moment right now. So part of your initiative involves making renewables more cost-effective. Take us a little bit into the future and tell me when we may be able to see that um, in communities across the country. What's, play to the end of the table a little bit on that. And with what energy sources do you think? Are we talking solar and wind or more innovative technologies? Well, there, um, there are so many fun technologies across uh, uh, across the um, clean energy space. Um, and so I would say, yes, absolutely. Solar and wind are part of those. Um, you know, back in about 10 years ago um, with the with the solar, uh, the sun shot, um, which the earth shot was somewhat uh, 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 built upon. Um, with the solar shot, we looked to cut in half the cost of solar in 10 years. And we did that actually in seven years. And so just this year, we announced an, more efforts to reduce the cost of solar by half again in the next 10 years. And we believe we can do that. Um, part of the uh, wind, uh, wind work that we have um, uh, done is, of course, consistently on research and development. But we're also looking at how we can help support the demonstration and deployment, moving further down uh, the scale of like getting this in the ground. And in part of that, we have made a goal of 30 gigawatts of offshore wind deployment by 2030. So we're looking at what we can do in this uh, 10 year horizon, but also the 2035 uh, goal that we have to, to decarbonize the grid wholesale um, by 2035. And the economy, having a net zero emissions economy by 2050. And that means we've got to work with all technologies. Solar is going to be a part, big part of it, as will wind. Uh, but that's not going to get us everywhere. First of all, we have to start with uh, energy efficiency. You know, the cheapest kilowatt hour that you use is the one, or the cheapest kilowatt hour is the one that you don't use. Um, but there are also, also other technologies that are coming up. Hydrogen, we uh, announced a hydrogen earth shot to get that cost down as well. We are looking at, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, carbon uh, reduction, uh, carbon uh, dioxide uh, uh, negative uh, negative uh, earth shot. We are looking at geothermal. We are looking at marine and hydropower, which frankly provides a 24 seven storage. It's almost like a battery uh, to really be able to bottle up that solar and wind when you don't need it. Um, and save it for the times that the sun's not shining and the wind's not blowing. There are so many technologies and we're looking at 2030, we're looking at 2035, and we're looking out to 2050 to make sure that we can get to that zero.
So surprise me just quickly, which technology um, excites you most? <laughs> so that's funny because I have twin girls and I, I can't choose between my children. <laughs> I think all of the technologies are just so exciting. It's really a matter of how we fit them together and how we integrate them into a grid and how we think about the timing. So when you think of some of those technologies that are more ready for deployment now, solar and wind, for example, we're going all out on getting those in the ground. Then we're working on some of the technologies that need a little bit further push, but that can be such an incredibly uh, important element of decarbonization, like hydrogen and like ge geothermal, getting those technologies to scale. And I and I didn't mention, um, but should, uh, as we work through uh, transportation sector and decarb, that's the highest sector that contributes to our greenhouse gases. So working through how we can electrify uh, transportation where it can be electrified, but also using um, electrification through hydrogen production um, on, on that and, and, and bioenergy for the airlines industry. So there's so many technologies that we need to be able to piece together. And that's why DOB is so important to our decarbonization strategy is um, really thinking about how all of these fit together. Co cooperation and collaboration between those offices is just really incredibly important um, to make sure that we get to zero economy wide. Kelly, I think you have time for one last question, although I'd love to ask a lot more. Um, when you look overseas, um, the US has been behind some other countries in terms of developing some clean energies. Which countries do you think are sort of beacons of, in your eyes, virtue in this, in this field and that you see as sort of role models for the way the, way the US could go? Well, just as there's um, so many different technologies to, um, to, to be working on at various stages in their commercial ability, I think um, each country has quite uh, there are many countries that I, we look to to learn from, not just to um, uh, uh, share our own um, share our own information with. Um, for example, uh, you know, Europe has, uh, uh, especially Northern Europe, has great offshore wind capabilities that we want to learn from to be able to internalize and to be able to bring some of those technologies and the deployment um, leapfrog, if you will. Uh, the capabilities to do that as, as cost-effectively as possible. Um, Japan has an amazing uh, hydrogen uh, effort, as do many countries. Um, and so coordinating across all of the countries on how we get more hydrogen into our uh, economy and infrastructures um, is, is an important thing. But choosing, again, choosing uh, one country over <laughs> the other is, is not necessarily how I can go about it. I understand completely. I just flew back actually from London recently and was stunned by the uh, the wind farms off the coast. But Kelly speaks back. Thank you so much for joining me and thank you for making it so much fun to talk about clean energy. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It is a lot of fun. I in, I implore everyone to go to our website and check out all the cool things that we're doing and we're up to and uh, reach out uh, if you if you're a community in need. I'll be back in a few moments with my next guest, John Doe. Stay with us. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello, everyone. I'm Ruth Umo, Editor-in-Chief of The Filaments. The Earth's change in climate has major implications for individuals, businesses, and policymakers alike, and has increasingly prompted companies to embed environmental, social, and governance factors into their very business strategy. 
Here to discuss this more at length is Erin McGrain, Senior Vice President and Head of SK's Washington, D.C. office, and former New York Congressman Joe Crowley. Uh, a hearty welcome to the both of you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Erin. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you. Welcome, welcome. Well, let's jump right into things. Erin, uh, we've all witnessed this quote-unquote ESG reckoning in recent years. Why is SK committed to investing in the United States and why the emphasis on clean energy in particular? Sure. Well, SK has been committed to the United States for decades now. At this time, we've invested $16 billion and have over 3,000 American workers. We've got operations and investments in over 21 states, including the District of Columbia. We are committed to investing in the United States for a number of reasons, Ruth, including the skilled workforce here, the friendly business and investment climate, our strong trade ties with South Korea, where of course SK is based, and our focus on clean energy and technology innovation. Our chairman has a double bottom line philosophy that measures not only economic value, but social value. This is in part why SK is emphasizing clean energy solutions that will help to address climate change on a global scale and create high skilled jobs in clean energy for the future here in the United States. Congressman Crowley, let me pivot to you uh, for your stance from the policy side. ESG activity has undoubtedly accelerated under the Biden administration. How do investments from companies like SK support the current administration's priorities uh, within this realm? Well, thank you, Ruth. And as, I think as Aaron mentioned, you know, SK and the Biden administration really share uh, the important goal of investing in clean energy technologies of the future, which will build upon, quite frankly, uh, the U.S.'s history of being a world leader in innovation. Um, the Biden administration understands that the private sector engagement from industry leaders like SK are going to be crucial uh, to transitioning the American workforce to high-skilled, high-paying uh, jobs of the future, especially uh, for next-generation clean energy manufacturing. Uh, SK's commitment to technologies like EV batteries, hydrogen, and energy storage system really aligns closely with the recent enactment of the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill and certain key provisions that are in the BBB or the Build Back Better legislation that's before Congress right now. And it really underscores that the administration, the Biden administration, and the private sector really share this focus on addressing climate change uh, through not only innovation, but also through investment. Certainly. While this heightened scrutiny and increased focus around ESG is still in its relatively nascent stages, so let's wrap up this conversation by looking ahead. What are the clean energy technologies that will power our future world? And more importantly, how else can companies and government collaborate to nurture said innovation? Well, Ruth, SK is focused on some of these exact technologies, as the congressman mentioned earlier, EV batteries, the hydrogen economy, and energy storage systems, as well as other important areas like carbon sequestration, solar, and next generation recycling. To nurture these technologies, companies like SK are focused heavily on workforce development and education, including partnering with technical colleges, 
trade schools and other community institutions to do our part to transition the American workforce to these more high-skilled, high-paying clean energy jobs. And a Congressman from the government side. No, I, I agree, uh, Ruth. I agree with Erin. I think the workforce development and STEM education are areas in which this administration, the Biden administration, and both Democrats and Republicans in Congress and companies like SK, they all share a common goal here and, and, and can and ought to be and should be working closely together. Uh, another area that I think enjoys bipartisan support is the public-private partnerships, the, the, the three Ps. As Erin mentioned, companies invest in the U.S., for strong, innovative institutions. So enhanced public-private partnerships, I, I think, are going to be uh, critical uh, to developing and commercialization of clean energy technologies going forward. Absolutely. Both very well said. And as we've seen historically, uh, public-private collaborations allow for more comprehensive uh, and large-scale projects, which can truly be transformative as we look at how to tackle climate issues. Erin, uh, Congressman Crowley, thank you both for your time and your insights. I'll now hand things back over to The Washington Post. Thank you. Thanks, Ruth. Thank you, Ruth. And now, back to Washington Post Live. Hello and welcome back to Washington Post Live. For those of you just joining us, I'm Frances Steed Sellers, a senior writer here at The Post. Joining me now to further this discussion about investing in clean energy is author of Speed and Scale, John Doerr. John, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Well, uh, thank you for having me here, Frances. Well, it's a very timely discussion and you have a book just out. We're thrilled to have you. Um, I'd like to, to start by talking about COP26, which wound up last month, and talk very much about governments investing in sustainable energy. What do you think the role of the public sector is moving ahead? Can it cope with the climate crisis we said be ahead of us? Uh, the public sector is vital among the various actors that must come together in what I consider to be the uh, largest mobilization that we've ever witnessed on the planet. Uh, a, a transformation of society greater than what the Allied forces took on when they defeated the Nazi Axis in World War II. Uh, the public sector, I believe, is lagging behind the private sector and the actions of investors, and especially lagging behind impassioned youth. But uh, COP, uh, as a, a convening, it really signaled an intention to raise ambition and objectives, and, and, and we more than welcome it. We need it. We just talked with Kelly uh, from the Department of Energy about President Biden's initiative, which he announced last week, to green the federal government. What was your impression of that Sorry, excuse me, initiative? Do you believe that President Biden went far enough with it? Well, I, I think that uh, President Biden, Secretary Granholm, Kelly, they have laid out the most ambitious agenda for energy policy that the nation has ever had. And so I, I, I'm very enthused about the, uh, the, the Build Back Better bill. I'm very enthused about the uh, infrastructure bill. Uh, we need all these and, 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 and we need them now. So let's get to your book. You talk in your book about how individuals and private companies can invest and commit to this kind of future. And I'm curious about your optimism, because it certainly shines through there. Why haven't you thrown your hands up? Why and said we can't do it? What is the, the commitment and what's the path forward 
that you are trying to show through that book? Well, this is a transformation unlike any other that we've uh, witnessed or taken on. But uh, we've had the benefit of work and research, lots of really great goals, the Paris goals, uh, goals in the climate community. What's been lacking until now is a, a plan. And that's what this uh, book, speedandscale.com, offers. Uh, a clear, pragmatic, ambitious set of uh, 10 great big objectives. Six of them are removing carbon. And each of those is then supported by some key results. I might early on in our conversation invite the readers to get a free copy of the plan. This is available now on the website, speedandscale.com, to download it and we can, we can, we can talk more about it. But uh, there, there's pretty broad agreement that we need to electrify transportation, decarbonize the grid, fix our food systems, and then protect nature, clean up dirty parts of industry, how we make steel and concrete, and then, and then tackle the hard problem of, of carbon removal. But I, I want to emphasize, Francis, this can be done. We, 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 we are um, not on track to avoid catastrophic climate crisis, but it's we, we, we still barely have time. I love the fact you picked up the poster and I saw how you could click on it on the website. But go a little, dig a little deeper into those, the OKRs, I guess, and maybe you can explain um, them as a business proposition and now as a proposition that you're looking at for curing the climate crisis. Sure. OKRs stands for objectives and key results, and they're at the heart of the book and the heart of the plan. This is a system for setting ambitious goals that was invented by a mentor of mine, Andy Grove, who was regarded at Intel Company as maybe the, the best of his generation or, or all managers. And Andy ran a chip company. When you're making computer chips, tens of thousands of people have got to get lines that are one millionth of a meter, one micron wide, exactly right or nothing works. So he came up with this system of clearly identifying the objectives, that's what you want to have accomplished, and the key results. And so we have six big objectives in the plan, in this plan, plan to get us to net zero. And then there are four accelerators to make sure that we get it done in time. For every one of these objectives, there's a handful, say three to five, specific time-bound measurable key results. I could pick an example of one, for example, let's do the first, electrified transportation. If the world, and this is a global plan, if the world succeeds in doing this, we can take eight gigatons per year and reduce it to two gigatons by converting all vehicles from running on gas and diesel to running on electricity from batteries. And to do that, we know we've got to get them price performance parity with the old fossil-based internal combustion engine vehicles. And the plan calls for us to do that by 2024 in the US. That means $35,000 per vehicle. And in China and in India, by 2030, that would be $11,000 per vehicle. So it illustrates that these big audacious objectives are teed up against 
a set of 55 measurable key results. The beauty of the measurability is we can track our progress along the way. And if we're falling behind, we can make mid-course corrections. We will not succeed at all these. They're ambitious, but, but we'll excel at some and, and, and make up for shortfalls with others. That's the plan. John, just grab that poster again. At the bottom, on the flip side, I saw the pink level, innovate and invest, and you have great exclamation points after that. Um, tell me about that, the exc exclamation points, and why investment is so important at this point. Well, let, let me take each of them in turn. There are some who would say we have all the technology we need today to get to net zero. That's not putting any more carbon in the atmosphere by 2050. And importantly, to get halfway there by 2030, just eight years from now. And I say rubbish, that's not true. We have many of the technologies and the advances in wind and in solar, principally advances in how cheap they are in their cost are stunning and they give us great hope. But we do not have all the technologies we need. And so we need to uh, encourage new companies being formed, research and development done by existing organizations. Uh, let me let me let me just call out a couple of the of the, the innovations that are are needed. We need to produce 10,000 gigawatt hours of batteries at less than $80 per kilowatt hour by 2035. Uh, we need to take the cost of engineered carbon dioxide removal down to $100 per ton by 2030, $50 per ton by 2040. So. I'm optimistic that this innovation can be done if we increase the funding, the federal funding, and that's part of the legislation that the Biden administration is advocating. The next area with an exclamation point is investing. And we need more global government subsidies for clean energy. We need to increase research and development. We need to grow the amount of venture capital project financing and philanthropic investing. And so the book lays out with not just technocratic goals, but mm -hmm. also with, uh, I, I think, memorable stories of, of innovators, of, of entrepreneurs, of leaders of indigenous tribes, of, of uh, impassioned, um, outraged youth, how our society can come together to, to solve this uh, mother of all challenges. So you're such an experienced investor. What sort of commitments do you look for in companies that you're thinking about investing in uh, for clean energy benefit? Well, I the, the, the first thing that I do is I form a judgment about the leadership, because no matter how excellent the plans are, uh, plans will encounter reality and new new problems and opportunities will emerge. But once you're satisfied that you have a, a, a team that wants to excel in solving these problems, then you turn to the marketplace. Will their innovation, will their contribution to the, to, to the, the brutally competitive marketplace allow them to 
lower the cost of a clean solution. If you have the leadership right and you have the the market right, then uh, you're you're off off to the races, the great race of our lifetime. Namely, can we get to a 50% reduction in emissions by the end of 2030? And what are the major considerations that you see holding companies back from transferring themselves to sustainable practices? Well, <clears throat> I, I think the companies, the corporate sector as a constituency is responsible for some 70% of the emissions that come out of our business activities. And I frankly have been impressed by the actions of both large and small companies to get ahead of the governmental agreements. Now, in, in fairness, it's hard for our political leaders to get very far ahead of the body politic. And as the book points out, in most places in the world, climate is not a top two voting issue. It is in Europe. It is not in the US. It is not in China. It is not in India. And so we have work to do on the ground as the world endures increasing storms and hurricanes and floods to make the connection between that and our carbon emissions. Um, but I, I took the actions of companies and I profiled them in the chapter of the book called Movements, because when a company like Walmart or like Amazon declares that they're going to mobilize their supply chain and lead it, drive it, expect it to get to net zero, that has a really profound and, and, mm. and, and, and necessary, powerful effect. So, John, in writing this book, you had the opportunity to learn about some of the social inequities um, tied to climate change. And of course, we're seeing that now with these dreadful tornadoes and the impact on, on marginalized communities or impoverished communities. What was the most startling lesson you took away from the reporting and research you did to produce this book? Well, it, I, I did not appreciate the degree to which climate amplifies the inequities that have been longstanding in our world. There are today 10 million climate refugees. These are people who've left their homes because they cannot typically uh, feed their family. They, they cannot uh, grow crops uh, due to the changes in the climate, the changes in the weather. And that means that the United States has got to go first. The wealthier nations of the world, and we've been the largest emitter of climate pollution, have got to show the world that you can decarbonize an economy and still have prosperity for your people. And the other reason is we have to use our market power to lower the cost of these technologies, to drive them down for everyone else. Then it's going to be necessary for the US and Europe and China to fund this transition for the developing developing parts of the world. I, th I think this social environmental justice element of it was something that I, I didn't appreciate until I did the research for the book. You have been at the forefront of the trend to uh, of ESGs, environmental, social, and governmental uh, impact on, on investing. What do you see as the future there? Is this a growing movement and the one that you think can transform the future of clean energy? 
the the ESG movement is is one of the reasons to be very optimistic about the future, and I I see it in both the climate oriented companies and those that are not climate oriented. In order to compete in the worldwide uh, battle to have talented people join your company, today's young people they must believe in the mission. They care. This, this is not optional for them. We're talking about their future. And so uh, when, when the workforce says to the leadership, we want to see you make commitments ahead of the Paris Accords. We want you to get to net zero by 2040, not by 2050. And not only make those commitments, but then meet them. That has a powerful effect on the leadership, in the boardroom, in the rank and file of, of our companies. I, I, you, you know, when we won World War II, there's no doubt government leadership was required. But the muscle that allowed the Western world and democracy to survive in the face of an existential threat was we shut down all manufacturing of cars and appliances for four years. And we made fighter aircraft instead, hundreds of thousands of them, battleships. It's that kind of mobilization that this second existential crisis demands of us. You have mentioned young people a number of times, and I know your own daughter was, was influential in your decision to commit. But just briefly, allow our readers and listeners to hear that story of Mary Dor's impact on you and your commitment to green energy. Well, I'm sure many of your readers and listeners will remember Al Gore's uh, seminal movie, An Inconvenient Truth. Uh, it, it, early when that came out, I went to see it with some friends in my family. And after the screening, we had a dinner conversation. We went around the table and asked what people thought. When it came, my daughter, Mary, 15 years old, her turn to speak. Frances, she looked directly at me and she said, Dad, your generation created this problem. I am scared and I am angry. You better fix it. And the room went silent. I, I didn't know what to say. And so I set out with my partners to learn more about the climate crisis, to travel the world, to look for solutions. And we began investing. Over the course of about 10 years, we invested a billion dollars in 70 different ventures, most of which failed. And we were pretty well criticized for that. But we stood by these ventures and they take longer, they take more resources. Uh, a, a, a decade, 15 years later now, uh, Mary is still worried and angry, but she's, uh, she's proud that this book is out there and uh, she's got high and reasonable expectations. John, I want to squeeze in one last question before I let you go. Um, we're in the midst of a pandemic. It doesn't seem to be opening, but crises, as you've mentioned, can be great disruptors and great opportunities for change. Um, World War II also left us with the jeep and uh, duct tape and the atomic bomb. But coming out of this, do you expect to see renewed commitment to environmental causes? Or are you concerned that it will be you know, a disaster on that scale too? I, I think we'll get renewed commitment, but I think it will come from an informed populace and it varies this, the political situation around the world. 
we we have a, a, a quite divided country, but as the tornadoes of this weekend or the devastating storms and wildfires of this year in the U.S. show us, um, the climate crisis knows no political boundaries. And it, it's, um, I think, has many of the same forces at work that have bedeviled us with respect to the pandemic. Do we respect science? Are we listening and, and acting in advance on warnings? Do we have even uh, and steady leadership? Are we dealing with misinformation? Um, I, I think the pandemic, everyone predicted we would have one at some time. We didn't prepare well. Well, the scientists have been telling us for quite some time that this climate crisis will be existential. And now is the time to act, to, to pass the Build Back Better Act, to get these bipartisan infrastructure funds deployed and to uh, secure for Mary and her generation uh, a, a clean and prosperous, healthy world. John Doe, thank you so much for joining us. Congratulations on your book and thank you for that positive message about the commitment to the future. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.